cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, the man behind the documentary 1991, The Year Punk Broke, and My Life is a Jerk, not to mention countless music videos from Black Flag Slip It In to Shonen Knife's Explosion, it's Dave Markey. Dave, how are things? Oh, uh, all right, you know, as, as well as they could be, I suppose. Do you find you're sleeping a little bit better now that Trump's out of office? Yeah, you know, things are definitely still off, but uh, yeah, um, at least he's gone. <laughs> but the residue, I think, <clears throat> the residue is, is, is hanging on. Well, let's, let's delve into films right now. We'll get to politics a little yeah. bit later. Eight millimeter. If you could, would you still be shooting on eight mil now? Super eight. Uh, yeah, I shot on eight millimeter originally when I started filmmaking in uh, 1974 as an 11 year old kid. But uh, yeah, I started shooting Super 8 a few years after. And uh, I occasionally still shoot it. It's just very expensive to do. And uh, it's not like how it was in the 70s and 80s and even in the 90s when it was affordable and, uh, you know, didn't require uh, high-end telecines and so forth. Uh, as far as, like, production goes, it's, uh, it's a totally different ballgame to shoot in that format at present. So uh, sort of a, protect, a protected answer there to, uh, to your question. But uh, I... Very, I'm very much fond of the format, and I, I love it, but uh, it really depends on the project. These days, I, I tend to shoot stuff digitally. Uh, it, it, again, it, it just depends on what it is that I'm doing. And do you find like you have a little bit more freedom now because you can film more because you're working digitally? Or did you find the spontaneity of having to try and grab those moments when you were shooting on film was actually a little bit more freeing as an artist for you? Well, uh, shooting in film, of course, is a lot more uh, costly and you have to be wise about what you're doing. You can't just uh, hit start and go and just run uh, the digital clock uh, basically at very little expense. Uh, but film requires a different focus uh, where you have to really know what it is you're going to shoot beforehand. And uh, there's pros and cons both ways. Uh, I'm not adverse to digital, but uh, film is definitely cooler and always will be. Well, you started your career out making film, well, film parodies, horror movie parodies, I should say. Did you think that you were going to be this horror movie director? And what really brought on the I want to go and follow musicians around and, and capture what's happening right now in Southern California? Well, that was really of the time. Uh, you know, I was uh, 17 years old and I became a musician myself and uh, sort of got into this uh, very kind of expansive and uh, quite amazing music scene. So uh, I don't know how conscious the decision was to 
to turn documentarian, but uh, it had more to do with the energy of stuff that uh, I was seeing and, and participating in by you know, forming a band on my own, getting out there and uh, getting involved with uh, this music scene, meeting a lot of people, uh, forging a lot of friendships. It all just sort of uh, happened that way. I, I don't think I was thinking of a career when I was a teenager making these these super eight films i was just doing uh what i loved and uh you know i really wasn't career uh focused i just kind of continued doing what i was doing uh no real big plans other than the projects that i were involved in at any given moment so uh yeah, I was pretty much uh, utilizing kids from the neighborhood early on before I had any other uh, options or, or uh, you know, relationships with people. So starting out that way uh, it was a good way to learn and uh, always a lot of fun. You you mentioned that you were playing bands at the exact same time and you were touring around with these bands that you were filming. Did you find it hard to focus one or the other or was it easy to juggle playing in the band and trying to get this footage that you were wanting to get of bands like Black Flag at the time? It depends. It depended on what it was I was doing. Oftentimes, if I was playing a show... Or whatnot. It would. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't make sense for me to have my uh, camera there. Uh, you know, of course, that shifted soon thereafter as well. Uh, when I was doing both, like say for example, on the six-month tour that I did with Black Flag, uh, commencing in uh, January of 1986, you know, I was playing um, every night and also shooting stuff at the same time. So that was pretty, uh, pretty hectic, but uh, I figured it out and you know, made it work. It's not like one was encroaching on the other. It was all just sort of happening together. And clearly if I was, you know, on stage performing, I wasn't going to be able to shoot anything. Occasionally I would hand the camera off to, uh, friends that were with me and they would shoot some stuff and some of that actually made it into the film that i made uh, reality 86 on that very same tour but f say what i was shooting in 81 and 82 that became the slog movie that was literally me going out for the night going to one of these venues usually in a pretty sketchy part of town and uh, oftentimes having to try to sneak my camera in uh, and uh, navigate the show experience uh, while you know photographing it. And of course, when you're when you're doing that, it really sort of takes you out of you're focused on on capturing stuff, it almost takes you out of the, the live experience. So oftentimes I would elect not to bring a camera along so I could enjoy the show. If I was seeing a band like say the bad brains for the first time, 
or uh, all the times that I saw the Minutemen, I never thought to shoot them because they played all the time and I saw them all the time, several times, sometimes in the same week. And, uh, you know, of course, in hindsight, I really regret uh, not documenting those moments, but I couldn't do it all the time because A, I was a music fan and I wanted to be there and I wanted to enjoy the show and, uh, or otherwise I was playing in the show or, uh, you know, so there was different concerns and I, I just did what I could, uh, when I could afford it. And like I said, it was pretty reasonable to buy a $10 roll of 50 foot, uh, Kodachrome 40 or Ektachrome 160. And uh, literally, I would have that one roll of film with me and I would have to make it work throughout the night. But fortunately, these bands often had very short songs. So, in the span of that film cartridge, which ran about three minutes, I could oftentimes get several songs on, on one roll of film. But of course, I would be making decisions at the time of what I could shoot and how I can make it work within that limited uh, time amount. Well, so. and, and then you did the co-directing uh, on Citizentania with uh, Raymond Pettibon. Was it easy working with him? Did you find a, a little bit of fresh air having this co-director to, to work on a project with? That was uh, something that, you know, that was a little different. Uh, Raymond had, he had written these scripts He'd written a series of scripts and was trying to get filmmakers uh, involved and not having a, a very good time with it. So he decided to do it himself on a cheap consumer uh, VHS camcorder, the kind that uh, had a microphone built into the attach and uh, built onto the top so you could literally hear everything. Like if your fingers were moving around the camera, you heard that. Uh, at any rate, he, uh, I helped him with a few of his titles. And then by the time we did Citizen Tanya, which I think was the third one that we did after uh, The Weatherman and uh, the Manson film, uh, Ray decided to give me co-director credit. But I, I really sort of helped out on all of those films. Sir Drone as well, uh, which I think is just the best one of the bunch. But uh, it was his decision to uh, give me a co-director credit. Uh, maybe I was a little bit more involved on that particular title uh, than the others. But again, that's 30, several years, 30-something <laughs> years ago in the past. So uh, kind of trying to recall it all and... But really, those just sprung out of uh, Ray's scripts. And the way those were shot was a bit different than the way I shot stuff. Raymond was more interested in getting his dialogue read and had it written on large pieces of paper, oftentimes his own flyers uh, that he had taped together and stuck on the wall. And he was quite happy to have someone sit there literally read the lines in front of the camera with, with no rehearsal or, or anything involved. And it's quite apparent when, when, when you watch those, but to me, those films are more about uh, 
his dialogue than anything else. And uh, some good stuff there for sure. Well, and then 1991, the year the punk broke, were you noticing that there was this punk movement happening outside of California even before this? And, and what really gravitated you towards wanting to go on this tour? How were you asked to go on this tour? And, and really kind of how did the whole thing come to be? That's a lot of questions at once. I'll try to get to them. Uh, really, 1991 is uh, really the 10-year mark for me being personally involved with this uh, music. So at that point in time, I'd already done a couple bands uh, and had a great deal of experience uh, touring and uh, recording and putting out records and making all of that work uh, on a very, you know, very shoestring level. So by the time 91 rolled around, uh, I had just finally finished my film, Reality 86, that I previously mentioned, the uh, Black Flag, Painted Willie, and Gone uh, road film documentary that I had shot in 86, but didn't have the facilities to put it together until 91. And uh, upon completing that, I showed it to my friend Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth, who I had worked with on a couple short films and a couple music videos. I did for the 1990 Goo album, uh, Mildred Pierce, in which I cast uh, a young Sofia Coppola in, uh, and also uh, Cinderella's Big Score. and all that, all that uh, went really well, and uh, the, the band had wanted me to do some sort of long, longer-form project for them. And the way 91 happened was uh, I just received a phone call from Thurston Moore. He was just like, we're leaving on this European summer festival tour in a couple weeks. We're bringing along Nirvana. It's going to be a lot of fun. Do you want to come along and uh, shoot some film? Yeah, and of course, uh, yeah, I jumped on it and uh, went out there, actually flew out there with Nirvana, who I met at LAX. They were in town. They had just the night before shot the music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit uh, and uh, literally met them in, in line for ticketing for, for the flight out of LAX to Heathrow and uh, sat with them. Uh, all, we all shared a big aisle in the middle of the plane and flew over there and uh, started that tour. So, of course, this was prior to the release of Nevermind. I believe Nevermind came out a month or two later and uh, it, it sort of captures uh, that band and Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. and Babes in Toyland and the Ramones and uh, Gumball. I think that was all of them. Uh, playing these, you know, huge festival shows. Primarily, it was festival shows. There were there were a couple smaller 
club and small venue shows involved on that tour. But uh, literally, I brought about nine hours worth of Super 8 film in a suitcase. And uh, for that, I really had to make decisions on the spot of what I was going to shoot. You know, it was just really a one-man show. I, I, I had, it was just me and my camera. I had no assistant. I had no second camera. I, I shot what I could. Uh, and single camera coverage, of course, is kind of limiting when you're putting a film together. So I edited it sort of a montage style. A lot of the performances are from different shows cut together. And that was really out of necessity to, to make the film work. So uh, it was a little different than what I did for the Slog movie or Reality 86 before it. I had uh, more film than I had for those previous titles, but still it was a limited amount. And it was a two-week tour and I had to make all of that work and uh, I just did what I just did what I could so I don't know if that answered all of those questions I think well and, and did you did, did, well do, the only one that you didn't mention was the um did you notice that punk was was breaking elsewhere other than Southern California at the time were you aware of of why well, I, I guess you were aware of Sonic Youth because of Thurston but were you aware of Nirvana Dinosaur Jr., Babes in Toyland, Gumball, even before oh, you, yeah. you went on the tour with them? Varying different uh, relationships with those artists. Uh, of course, I had seen Nirvana prior. I, I saw them in 1990. Again, they were opening up for Sonic Youth on some West Coast dates. And, uh, of course, I was traveling with Sonic Youth at the time, shooting stuff for the music videos that I did for the Goo album, uh, getting live performance stuff. And uh, I remember on that particular jot, they did not have Dave Grohl yet. They were in between drummers. So they had Dale Crover from the Melvins filling in. And uh, so I had already sort of seen them. And of course I started seeing Sonic Youth in the mid eighties, uh, I saw their very first California show at uh, the Mojave uh, Desert, which was documented in this film called Desolation Center that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, it was a one-off show out in the desert with uh, Sonic Youth and Meat Puppets and Red Cross and Perry Farrell's first band, Psycom. So... Uh, and then in between that and uh, 1990, every time Sonic Youth came to town, I would see them. Uh, I occasionally would cross paths with them when I was out there on the road with my own band, uh, Painted Willie in 86 and in 87. So I had already sort of forged a, a relationship with, with the band, uh, with Sonic Youth, specifically Kim and Thurston the most. Uh, uh, and uh, so, yeah, we, we, we already knew each other. I had already worked with them. They knew my films. Uh, 
Desperate Change Love Dolls and uh, Love Doll Superstar, which actually they contributed a song for the soundtrack for in uh, 1986. So um, as far as Dinosaur, yeah, I, I was label mates with them on SST Records. Uh, my band, Painted Willie, most famously once played a show with them in Huntington Beach, California in 87, where literally no one showed. It was not one paying customer and the, and the gig didn't happen. So, uh, uh, you know, and I'd seen Dinosaur play uh, several times before that as well. Of course, the Ramones saw every time they played in Southern California from the early 80s on. Uh, and uh, was a huge fan. Never thought that I would actually meet them or get to document them. It was quite thrilling. And, uh, you know, uh, if you would have told me as a teenager that I would have eventually been doing this, I wouldn't have believed it. So, I mean, there was so much happening on that 91 tour. Uh, the whole title, The Year Punk Broke, is often misunderstood. It really comes out of a running inside joke between myself and Sonic Youth. Uh, it started at the very beginning of the tour when we had all witnessed uh, an MTV performance from Motley Crue playing at that time in 91 at some large European festival and they were covering the Sex Pistols Anarchy in the UK. And at that point, uh, I sort of coined the term, oh, 1991 is the year punk finally breaks because, you know, you got Motley Crue doing the Sex Pistols. And that sort of set up the tone for the whole film. Uh, something that uh, the band would even say jokingly on stage. Uh, I know I have some live recordings from that and you could hear that phrase being tossed around. You could see it in the film uh, written on the blackboard uh, at one of the venues, uh, 1991, your punk finally breaks. So it was just sort of an inside joke that uh, became the title of the film. Of course, not knowing, or no one really knowing at the time, what was just about to happen with Nirvana. And uh, you could not really have predicted that at that point in time, because no band from the American underground was able to go 14 times platinum and knock Michael Jackson off the charts. That just didn't happen before Nirvana. So our little inside joke sort of turned prophetic and uh, has been often misunderstood since. <laughs> but uh, I think the band Nirvana was just really on fire on that tour. I think... I know uh, those shows are definitely fan favorites because the band was just about to release Nevermind. And, uh, and 
the mood and the vibe at the time was just great. And there was just a lot of excitement in the air and everybody was having a great time. And uh, pre-fame Nirvana, right on the verge of, of, of them hitting, it was sort of like their last free moment before, say, the pressures of superstardom would, would kick in. And of course, soon eventually consume Cobain, sadly, tragically. Uh, things were never the same for the band after that moment in time. And uh, I think that film just captures that last moment of innocence, that last moment of freedom, and really uh, the last moment of fun before it turned into a very large concern. And then your companion piece to 1991, This Is Known As The Blue Scale, did you have this completed at the time and, and you were trying to get it released or maybe even this big director's cut or did this really not come to be until the DVD release was going to come out? That didn't come about until 2004. And uh, I put it together in anticipation of a DVD release and the DVD release took many, many, many years to happen. It finally happened in 2011 and then I was able to officially release that film, uh, the companion piece. This is known as the Blue Scale, uh, which I comprised out of footage I didn't use in the film. So I was able to get 40 minutes of, of uh, performance and offstage stuff together. And I edited that film, like I said, in 2004 with... With, uh, you know, with hindsight, time had passed and uh, it's, it's a slightly different feel to it because of that, but it's still all the footage and I still cut it in, in a similar fashion as to, as, as how I did for uh, your punk broke. So uh, I was quite surprised that I was able to get uh, another 40 minutes out of that, considering I'd already cut a 99-minute feature years years prior. Uh, and I, I was only working from the source material of, like I said, nine hours worth of footage. So so I, I think I uh, was able to make it work for, for both film projects there. Do you approach uh, directing music videos a little bit differently than you do your documentaries? Or do you come in the exact same way and and your process is the exact same process no matter what you're tackling? It depends on on what it is that I'm doing. Uh, Documentary style, it's a lot more free form. It's a lot more in the moments. If I'm shooting a music video or or a narrative feature film, of course, I'm oftentimes working from uh, a script or at least rough ideas or at least dialogue and scenarios that I had pre-planned. So uh, it's just different 
different concerns. But uh, ultimately, for me, uh, which which one would I prefer better? Uh, I don't even know if I have a preference. <laughs> uh, oftentimes, I was very much uh, focused on the task at hand and, and try to keep it as, as simple as possible um, while doing it. So, Have you ever wanted to get back into the, the narrative style of filmmaking and more feature films? Has, has this been an itch that you've always wanted to scratch? Or do, or do you prefer yeah. at, at this point? Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I've uh, I had a few projects stop and start over the years. Uh, uh, but, um, yeah, I was always sort of trying to make that happen. But uh, the realities of, of, of getting those films made are a lot more complex. And... Uh, a lot more difficult. So I think I excelled pretty well with working with that vibe of being in the moment and uh, being the documentarian and capturing what I could with limited resources and uh, limited time. I think I, I, I tended to make those situations work pretty well. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it just takes a lot more to get a, a narrative feature made. And I, I, it was frustrating for me because I didn't want to continue to repeat myself. I didn't want to make another Love Dolls film. I didn't want to shoot on Super 8 with my friends. You know, I wanted to, to up the ante. But, uh, you know... It was a difficult thing to do. Do you think that running a fanzine in the early 80s actually helped your editing style because of the collage nature? Or do you think that your filmmaking mind helped the fanzine a little bit? Difficult to say because I was doing both at the same time, but it was all a part of the same energy. Uh, But uh, yeah, from doing a fanzine, you you figure stuff out your own way. Uh, You know, you get your own sort of visual uh, representation of, of what it is you're doing. Even when you're just working with, uh, you know, an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, you've got to put it together. You've got to design it. You got to type it out. You got to type out the content on a typewriter and, uh, you got to uh, take photographs, uh, make the photos work on the page. So, uh, yeah, it was it was all a learning experience for sure. And I think they all sort of fed each other, all the various uh, concerns that I was involved with, whether it was uh, still photography or, or doing the fanzine or doing the music, uh, putting out the records, booking the shows, doing the tours, uh, you know, making the films. 
completing them on very limited uh, budgets, making all of that work, getting the films released, promoting the films, uh, getting soundtrack recordings together for the films, uh, putting out those records, uh, taking the film, uh, taking some of these films I took on the road. Loved All Superstar, for example, did a couple uh, cross-country treks in live venues. We even were able to bring the Loved Dolls band along with with the the sequel out to an East Coast tour uh, in, I think that was either 86 or 87. So, um, yeah, I mean, when I look back at it, And I, and I try to recall how all of it was done. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of baffling. But I think the thing is, is that I just simply did it, <laughs> for better or worse, not knowing uh, any better. I, you know, no one was going to stop me because I was just... Uh, going to do what I was going to do. And it was a pretty, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It was a great uh, time to be shooting stuff. And just a lot of, uh, a lot of things going on. And a lot of stuff now that is now musical history. I grew up watching rock documentaries uh, like Jimmy Plays Berkeley and uh, Monterey Pop and uh, those films to me like I, I was just always amazed at, at, at the ability of, of the photographers to get these moments live as they're happening. Like, for example, Jimi Hendrix setting fire to his guitar at, at Monterey. Like, I just thought that was the coolest thing. And, I mean, that definitely, all that stuff definitely informed me uh, and was part of my uh, DNA, as it were. But, I mean, I, I, I grew up watching film. Like, I was always very much a student of film. And also... You know, highbrow, lowbrow stuff, it didn't matter to me if I was watching. I, 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 early on, I got much of my uh, aesthetic and gestalt, as it were, from B-movies and, and, and uh, you know, say the works of uh, John Waters and uh, movies that I would see, you know, in the middle of the night uh, on broadcast TV that, you know, probably never even got theatrical releases, but yet really informed me, like the curse of Bigfoot, you know, this, these total crap uh, exploitation movies, yet there was this elements of it that, that, that uh, I found informative and endearing. And uh, I also, of course, watched all the classic films and, and very much was... Growing up at the very uh, the, at, 
a great time for cinema in the 70s and absorbing all the 60s sort of counterculture films, and this, which led to the cinema of the 70s and you know, watching the works of Coppola and Altman and so many others and just absorbing that and just really uh, getting into um, film on, on, a, on a more serious level. I mean, for me, I, I it, it, it was a wide range of things. I, I didn't uh, discriminate. Do you do you subscribe to Tarantino's vision of the best film school is sitting down and watching a film and going out and making your own? Well, I sort of did that. <laughs> I did that, you know, um, in my youth. That that's sort of how I came up. Uh, that was my life. <laughs> and uh, funny enough. Quentin used to work in a video store in the South Bay uh, in the 80s. And I used to drive all around to video stores in, in Southern California, and I would try to sell them my, my film titles. And uh, I was able to actually get in there and sell my films to Video Archives, the video store that Quentin was working in at the time. And Quentin saw those films. Quentin knew those films. So, uh, you know, uh, of course, when, uh, I mean, he, he just really kick-started the, the whole 90s, you know, alt-film explosion. And with Reservoir Dogs and you know, Pulp Fiction, it was just, it was just phenomenal. Uh, and, uh, of course, we both grew up in the same time and, and had the same sort of references and the same sort of, you know, highbrow meeting trash aesthetic, you know, watching exploitation films with, with the same uh, uh, fandom as watching a great filmmaker's work. So, um, yeah. Did I answer the question? Oh, of course. I forgot what the question was at this point, but uh, no, of course. The but um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I I also remember that's how I got my film in lots of video stores in the '80s as well. When I was out on the road playing shows with bands, I would always, you know, during the day, find out where all the the, the cool record stores were and all the the video uh, rental places were. And, I would go out there and I would uh, peddle my wares. I would I would ask to speak <laughs> to you know if if the if the buyer was in you know got to check this film out you know so I had Desperatini's Love Dolls and Love Dolls Superstore <clears throat> on VHS that I was peddling and that's how I was able to get the film in a lot of video stores before I actually got uh, distribution deals you know smaller just distribution deals with with a few companies here and there that actually ended up getting those titles into uh, a lot of uh, mainstream video stores like Blockbuster, for example. Uh, for some reason, I was able to sell uh, Despertini's Love Dolls, you know, to about a thousand different Blockbuster locations. So, uh, I mean, stuff like that at the time was just like really major for, 
for me. And uh, and that's how a lot of people saw those films. And then people, of course, back then in the 80s, before the internet, right, uh, there was this big sort of VHS culture where I don't know how many people I've talked to in various parts of the country that, that said, yeah, the first time I saw your film was like, you know, my buddy made a, a, a second or third VHS generation dub of, of, of Desperate Change Love Dolls. And, you know, everyone on our little scene here would get together and, and, and watch it. And that was sort of a, a phenomena that, that uh, I don't even know is, is even really that well documented or discussed, but uh, I've just heard that story many times from, from lots of people uh, over the years. And people would, would trade VHS tapes and uh, that was sort of like the uh, underground distribution network of, of the 80s that really sort of got that work out there. And there's really no other way for that to happen. And uh, that's how that all went down. I mean, truly underground, you know, truly, uh, uh, I don't even know the word. I was going to say organic, but that's not even the right word. But just, it, it, that's the way it all went down. <laughs> How how good of an archive have you kept? Do you do you um do you do transfers on your on your works a lot? Do you try to keep it up with the latest technology? Have these new HD transfers, 4K transfers? Have you thought about doing that to all the early work? Or do you? I've or, or, already done. I've already done some 4K transfers for Jasper uh, Change Love Dolls and the Slog Movie, and they look phenomenal. Um, technology has finally caught up. I mean, if you go back and you look at those works uh, in their time on VHS, the, the, I did like the cheapest telecines possible uh, at the time, uh, and you know, and the films didn't really look that great because back then, you know, you 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 stuck a a video camera, you know, at the at the edge of a projector and and you got your image and you got what you could, you know, it looked okay, but it never really looked great. It always looked best to project the films. And I did that a lot. I did lots of uh, shows in, in, in various venues, a lot of bars, uh, some small theaters where I would actually do Super 8 projection. And, and nothing matched the look of that. And that's what really, I think, sort of sold those films, the Love Dolls films especially. Uh, there, there, there's no denying that uh, getting people together in a room, watching something on a big screen, uh, really, that's, that's it. That's what it's all about. And again, I was able to do that uh, in L.A. a lot. Um, throughout the 80s and that was always sort of a kick you know well what can we expect from you coming up well right now uh you know we're still we're still pretty much in lockdown here in los angeles and uh uh i mean there is some sort of film production going on but 
I wouldn't feel that comfortable trying to make anything work until once we get past what we're dealing with now, which, uh, you know, is probably going to linger for quite some time. I don't really see any quick, uh, easy way to fix this. It's going to be some time before we could actually get back to normal. So in the meanwhile, I'm just working on, uh, I'm going to be working on doing 4K releases of, of some of my old work, and I've already sort of started that. And uh, the occasional music video came through, uh, like I did one for NoFX last year, utilizing a lot of footage from the uh, aforementioned Slog movie. And uh, that's, that's the new 4K transfer, so that gives you an idea of what it's going to look like. Uh, and it, it, it just looks great. Well, I'm very excited. I, I'm I'm super excited to revisit all of your old work again on the 4K transfers. And I just want to thank you so much, David, for coming on here today. It really means a lot to me. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I hope I hope we uh, uh, got to everything it is that you wanted to discuss. And I hope <laughs> I was able to to uh, answer your, your question. Of course. Thank you again so much. Thank you for listening. Make sure to keep up with all things Dave Markey over at WeGotPowerFilms.com. If you haven't seen the Slog movie or 1991, The Year the Punk Broke, or My Life is a Jerk, the document on the Circle Jerks, Dinosaur Jr. Live with the 930 Club, there's so much you need to go check out. Reality 86, the list goes on and on and on. I'd like to thank Dave again for coming on here. Hope you enjoyed. And this concludes our broadcast day.